As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This week on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, we're talking college hoops with a man who has played D1 ball, coached, and served in the armed forces. And currently, he's an analyst for ESPN and others. We'll meet him in a minute. But first, Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Monica is a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a three in transition and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. King is a former three and D Baylor baller whose idea of a good time is locking down the other team's best scorer. Monica, King, let's do this. Welcome to Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. I'm Monica McNutt. Our super producer extraordinaire, Bruce Bernstein, is in for King McClure. King's a little bit under the weather, uh, but he will make a speedy recovery. Our guest today is a familiar name for college basketball fans. He's ESPN's Chris Spatola. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for joining us. It is quite the honor. I'm, I'm enthused to be here. It's great to see uh, your smiling face and then uh, whatever, whatever Bruce is calling that. I guess we call that a face, but uh, it's, it's good to see both of you. <laughs> that is so funny. All right, before we jump into college basketball, which I cannot say enough is such a feat that we've gotten the season started and underway. Uh, we do want to talk a little bit about you. You played four years of ball at Army. What was mm. playing in a service academy? I have so much respect for you guys, Chris. Well, basketball was the highlight, Monica, um, of my day. Uh, you know, I, I never intended to, to be in the military or go to a military academy. I just wanted to play my sport at the highest level. And, uh, you know, they recruited me. Actually, Dino Gaudio, who most folks know was the, the coach at Wake Forest and is now an assistant at Louisville. He was the coach at Army at the time. He, they saw me at an AAU tournament, started recruiting me. I went on my visit there, and I still give Coach Gaudio hell about this. I, don't, I think he said maybe three or four words to me on the visit. He was recruiting my parents. They fell in love with West Point. We get home from the visit, and I was like, I can't, I can't wear uniform every day. I can't get up at 6 in the morning. I can't do this. And, uh, and my parents, you know, my dad walks in the room and says, you're, you're going to Army, right? I mean, that, you can't turn that down. And the rest is history. So that's where I ended up. And it was tough, but, uh, but I'm proud to have, have graduated from there. Chris, uh, after graduating, you did five years of active military service. And I want to thank you for your service. As we said before, uh, military folks and medical professionals are my heroes. Athletes are somewhere down the pecking order. But uh, where were you deployed and what were some of the duties that you had? Yeah, so I was stationed, uh, I branched in the Army field artillery, so that was kind of my specialty. But, um, you know, when I got in, so I graduated in 2002, and of course, um, the towers came down that year. It was my senior year at West Point when the, the Twin Towers came down. So we, 
it's funny because I, I always tell people I joined a military that was at peace, you know, like Bill Clinton was downsizing the army. And so I, I don't know if I would have made a different decision if it was post 9-11 to go to West Point. But nonetheless, my senior year, uh, it became a very different army. And of course, we, we went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I ended up going to Iraq in 2005 uh, for about 14 months. and. Um, you know, again, my branch was field artillery, but when we went over there, and this speaks to the, the quality of people in the military and what the military is capable of doing, we were, the Saddam Hussein trial was going on the year I was over there, and I was stationed in Baghdad, and we were in charge of security for a hotel, it's called the Al Rashid Hotel in downtown Baghdad, we were in charge of security for the judges and the witnesses uh, who were a part of Saddam Hussein's trial. Uh, they were high value targets and they had to be protected. And, and that was what, um, what I was responsible for and what our unit was responsible for. So it was wild. I mean, again, I, I was a guy who went to the army to play basketball, joined an army at peace, and then I ultimately end up being involved with the Saddam Hussein trial. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, big time. <laughs> and, and there's two things there that I think make you especially unique. I mean. I get the feedback of you were an athlete. How did the lessons of being an athlete translate to life, right? But now you've got athlete and military, which are two sets of skills um, that are, I think, make you unique to tackle adversity, shall we say. Um, and I remember doing a project at the first station I worked at, and it was on a military woman. And she said to me, I wish I had the skills of an athlete because in the military, it's achieve the goal or die versus as an athlete, you have an opportunity to respond. And so there's a different mental correlation there. What did you find? It was, was there part of being an athlete that prepared you for the military or, or vice or not vice versa because of the timeline? Yeah, you hit it right on the head. And this is one of the reasons why coaches and athletes use a lot of military metaphors in sports because there's a lot of crossover uh between the two i mean there's i mean i don't have to tell you guys you know dealing with adversity fear of failure um how you adapt to failure uh giving your best effort you know there's an adage one of my favorites that i, I learned while i was there that you know when you think you have given everything you have in you when you think you are fully spent you're really only at about 40% of what you're capable of doing. And so the question becomes, as it is for athletes, but also in tough times, be it in combat or while you're at West Point or training in the service, how you pull out you know, that, those other percentages, how you get to 80%, uh, 90% of what you're capable of doing. And you need teammates and, and you need to be pushed and coached. And so there's a lot of that, that overlap. Um, some of the best leaders, and I'm generalizing, but it's one of the reasons that some of the best officers and non-commissioned officers in the military are, are athletes, are former athletes, um, because there are a lot of, of similarities between the two. Uh, it's a meritocracy. You can't play, you can't play. It doesn't matter if it's sports or, or in the service. Um, so, you know, obviously the, it's, it's win or lose in sports. And, and as you said, the stakes are a bit higher in the, in the service, certainly when you're deployed. But um, man, thank God I was an athlete because the application uh, to the military was, was very comfortable. So obviously serving in Iraq in such a, you know, high 
danger situation, I suppose, had to be a life-changing experience. But then when you finished up in the military, you joined Coach K's staff at Duke, and that had to be a life-changing experience in another way. It was. Man, was it. Um, you know, I've been fortunate, guys. You, you would understand, you know, so much of the success we experience individually in our life is a byproduct of the people with whom we surround ourselves, and, and that comes down to what teams, teams you're on. Uh, I was on the West Point team. I was on the U.S. military's team, and then I, I had the opportunity to join Coach K's team uh, at, at Duke. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't certain that coaching was going to be a future for me, but I knew that sports was, and I knew that basketball was. And he had a, a graduate assistant spot on his staff. Uh, I, I had a relationship. And, you know, he said, well, why don't you come join my staff and see, see how it is for you? And it was incredible. I mean, we won a national championship in 2010. Got to be around a ton of amazing talent and players. Got to work for him and, and what all of that was about, which was, um, it was incredible. Uh, and, and got to understand what it meant to be a coach and, and you know, adding that to the, the resume that ultimately informs everything I do now was, was a big part of, of, of things I talk about on air. So it was, uh, it was crazy. But sometimes I had to pinch myself like, my God, here I am at Duke, the house of Leitner and Hill and Reddick and, uh, and Shane Batty. You know, it was, it was crazy. It was surreal. And, and, um, but it was an amazing experience. Um. 2010, Nolan Smith, right? That was yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We all grew up together here in the DMV. Okay, so let's let that segue into present day. College basketball is on. Knock on all the wood. Cross the fingers. Say your prayers that we get through this season. Um, and speaking of Duke, Michigan State rolled in and got a W in an empty Cameron Indoor uh, earlier this week. Some folks suggested, Chris, that there should be an asterisk by it for uh, Coach Izzo. What do you say to that? I think that's baloney. I, I think that's baloney. You know, we're all, all these teams are lining up and we've seen it in, in college football. All these teams are lining up, doing what they have to do. The fact that Michigan State, I don't care if there's fans in Cameron or not, the fact that Michigan State was willing to go on the road uh, was, was a big deal. So asterisk, no way, no way. Um, you know, I will say this, I think, look, in any given year, and you guys know this, I think it helps to be old in college basketball. I think in this particular year, it's even more important uh, because of just the odd offseason, the odd summer, the odd preseason, all of the distractions outside of basketball that they, these, these teams are having to deal with. No exhibitions, no preseason scrimmages. Uh, and I think you saw that on display. You saw Michigan team has some some grizzled veterans relatively speaking and then you saw a duke a really young duke team uh i, I thought michigan imposed its will and did so in, in pretty emphatic fashion it was, it was fun to see it was fun to see a, a game in cameron it was actually interesting to see a game in cameron with no fans because i would none of us I, I think most most people who love college hoops have never seen that so it's funny you mentioned that though because i played an aau tournament in the triangle back in the day so yeah. I've been, I played in Cameron while it was empty, <laughs> like North Carolina and NC State while you're at it. Um, so yeah. this has kind of been, and I, I don't mean this um, to be shady to the women's game at all. I love the game and it afforded me many opportunities, but this limited fans thing, I'm like, ball is still ball. Like, let's, yeah. let's go. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I was calling a tournament last week in South Dakota, uh, which was the battle for Atlantis. They moved it to South Dakota because of the pandemic and there were no fans in the arena. And you, I mean, you know this, Monica, like once you're in the game, once the ball is thrown up and we're going up and down, you know, I lost sight of the fact that there were no fans. Now I have called games in arenas with no fans. I've played in, in arenas like you have with no fans. So it's not, it's not an environment that is foreign to me, but you lose sight of the fact of that there are no fans in the building. And, and so look, college basketball is not the same without it. It's a big part, particularly in, in an arena like Cameron, it's a big part of the experience, but I think the sports can be okay. Like, I think it'll be fine if, if there aren't fans in these arenas. Chris, one of the guys who had a big game for Michigan state was rocket Watts is Rocket Watts, like the best basketball name ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They've got two interesting. So you've got Rocket Watts that may, in fact, be, although Fats Russell has got to be up there, too. Uh, two of the great names in college <laughs> basketball. But then Rocket Watts is backed up by Foster Lawyer, who sounds like he, he like should be living in Greenwich Village, reading from a Proust novel uh, to all of his friends you know, sitting around a, a campfire on a roof in Greenwich Village. Yeah, it's, it's the two names at the point guard position for Michigan State this year are in, incredibly special. That's, um, I, I love the names in, in college basketball. All right, so that was a, I guess the Duke-Michigan State game wasn't Monday night, was it? The week, the days all run together. Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday, right. Day. So we're now into, you mentioned the tournament you called in South Dakota between that game. We've got a good rhythm. We had Gonzaga, West Virginia last night. I don't know about you, Chris, but when Jalen Suggs went out and then came back in, I was like, somebody get him off the floor. But Mark Few, Gonzaga, uh, very, very talented team this year. And it looks like Suggs is going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's a football player. So it's in the DNA to come back. But I'm with you. Like, what are we doing here? And they, they, they could have won that game without him especially with how Andrew Nemhard played. Uh, I, I think it's Mark Few's deepest team. And that's saying a lot because he's had really good teams. That team in 2016 was very deep. But I, I think this is his deepest team. They go two to three deep at every position. They have post scoring. They have perimeter shooting. They have guards like Suggs who can get into the paint and take you off the dribble. Uh, they're incredibly hard to guard and defend. They're always good offensively. But I – I think this year, too, they're going to get after you a little bit defensively as well. Uh, they're loaded. And they are, although Baylor looked pretty good last night against Illinois, so I don't want to close, I don't want to necessarily separate too much. But I, I think the separation between Gonzaga and the rest of the field right now is, is, is pretty wide. Mm, okay. You know, you mentioned Mark Few, who to me is like eternally youthful looking, yet he picked up his 600th win last week against Kansas. So is this the team, is this the Gonzaga team that's going to win it all finally? He's been knocking on the door yeah. for quite some time. Yeah, to me, they're the favorites. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you, you mentioned the asterisk on the Michigan State win, which is crazy. Um, I, I wonder how, you, you know, it's kind of like in the NBA, like, like obviously, LeBron winning there, it's going to create debate no matter what happens. But, you know, how we evaluate historically that championship, I think will be interesting about something like this. There's part of me that believes Gonzaga is going to win. They certainly, again, are the favorite to do it. But what shape 
by March. I mean, look at where we are right now with this virus and, and all that's going on. Where are we by March? What does the sport look like? Are we still playing the sport? And if we are, what shape and form does the, the NCAA tournament take? And then how does that impact um, not just Gonzaga's path to doing that, but, but ultimately how it's received historically? Uh, I, I want him to win uh, I, because I think it's – to me, it's, it's limiting to say, well, he never won a national championship, and so that puts a, a, a mark on somebody's career. Obviously, he's a Hall of Famer and will be at some point. but you want him to win just so he does have that uh, because he's worthy of that. And obviously the program he's run, it's funny. He wins 600 games uh, appropriately, like you said, against Kansas, which is incredibly appropriate that Gonzaga and Mark Few gets a 600th against a program like Kansas, a blue blood, but it doesn't even scratch the surface of what he has done and created Derek Gonzaga. It's, which is crazy because 600 wins is a lot of wins. Yeah. Uh, 600 wins. That's I, and you know what? It's funny because just in the big basketball conversation, I'm always mindful, of course, in the analyst chair, but even as a fan, to truly appreciate greatness, right? Like the great ones make it look easy, you know what I mean? But what they have poured into it, whether it's few in his 600 wins, the multiple titles LeBron has, any of the greats of the game, like it looks easy, but we really need to be respecting what they're accomplishing, like to the umpteenth degree. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we live in such a prisoner of the moment period yeah. here, and, and there's a lot of things that fuel that, social media being one of them. But it, it um, you know, these, and these debates are so confined because you're trying to have them in 140 characters or whatever it is on Twitter, or because we live in a, in a media space where it, it has to be so binary, like it, it's either one or the other. He's either the goat or he's not. Uh, there's very little nuance to, to that discussion. Um, you know, I think we learned more about LeBron James and some of the losses he, he suffered in the finals than we did in the wins. Uh, and, and I think that, unfortunately, that doesn't enter the conversation enough. Um, it's, it's incredible. It really is what he's done and, and what he's been able to do with, in some cases, very little. You know, again, I think it's some of the losses. When you look at the rosters he had in those, it, it's crazy. And so I – I think a lot of it gets to how we discuss winners and how we discuss winning and, and we put people in those categories. But uh, Mark Few, it, it, there's no question. Again, look at what he's done at Gonzaga. At Gonzaga, mm -hmm. he's got a team that is loaded. I mean loaded, so separated from the field in a world where it's just not built for that to happen. Like we live in a power five world in terms of the conferences certainly in football, but it's that way in basketball. I mean, there are definitely the haves and the have-nots. And, and for him to build what he's built there is just – it's truly remarkable. Yeah, definitely. You know, I was, I was going to ask you because you, – you, and you kind of touched on it a little bit there. Gonzaga is located in Spokane, Washington, which is eastern Washington State, almost into Idaho. It can't be the easiest place to convince young guys to say, hey, come play up here in – Spokane, Washington. <laughs> right. No, it's not. I, I don't know if you guys have been there. Uh, I don't know how they get the, the – I don't know how they get the recruits from the airport to the facility, you know, in some of those places in the state of Washington. But, um, no, I, I mean, you hit it on the head. It, for, first of all, start with resources. I mean, that, that, like, that's a big, big part of, 
of recruiting. It's a big, big part of what you sell, right? I mean, if, if we're going to agree that we're in an arms race now in college athletics, well, then how does a place like Gonzaga survive? I think Mark early on embraced uh, – who he was going to be able to recruit. So they've relied a lot on foreign players. They're right there on the West Coast. He's done a nice job established, and he's hired the right staff to be able to access and leverage relationships uh, overseas. Um, they've gotten lucky with some guys, but he's also gotten grown guys into that program, you know, and they've developed a reputation. I will also say this, the NCAA tournament, it, it helps programs like that. Definitely. Where, whereas college football, it's a four-team tournament, and you're never going to have one of these mid-majors or whatever they call them, you know, group of five teams. They're never going to be in there in a four-team tournament. Well, the NCAA tournament, even though he hasn't won it, it allows a program like Gonzaga to be on the stage you know, every March and to be able to do what it does. Here's the other thing. For all of these schools that want to fire their coaches after two or three years, the fact that he has been there 22 seasons as the head coach, and then he was the assistant before that for Dan Munson, the fact that you've had that continuity, it helps a program like that because identification these days is not just the brand, but it's the coach. Yeah. So the fact that he's been there as long as he has has also afforded him the opportunity to build it, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's so funny you mentioned – some of those tournament teams, I think of Brandon Clark immediately, Rui Hachimura, who's here in D.C. Like, I remember Wizards fans being like, who's this guy? And I'm like, wait, Gonzaga, Mark Few, the kid has great size, and he's been taught how to play basketball at, at a high level. But, Chris, while we got you, I'm su super sad King's not here because he's obviously my men's college basketball go-to. The top 25 this year, I'm not going to lie. As I'm, like, following along, I'm like, Illinois? And when did Illinois come back in the conversation? What, what is this about? Um, and that's kudos to what Underwood has been able to do with that program. But talk to me a little bit about this squad. They obviously didn't hang – well, it was a decent game. But Baylor got the – or excuse me. Yeah, Baylor got the best of them yeah. um, midweek. But both of those teams, what do you see there? Well, let me start backwards and start with the Baylor win. You know, and you guys know this. You don't just arrive. Like, winning is hard. And, and you're not going to be – no one anoints you. Like, you have to go out and actually win games like that, big games. And, and Baylor has earned its opportunity. They have earned their moment in games like that. And I thought that they have old guards. Uh, by the way, they have guards, and I think guards win in college basketball. But Baylor has, has in some respects, arrived over the last couple years. Uh, they certainly would have been one of the favorites to win last year. In the case of Illinois, they are ascending. They weren't ready to win a game like that last night. That said, um, what they have done and what Brad Underwood has done and what you have to do, I think, sometimes in college basketball, and again, sometimes you get lucky, is you have to keep your good players. Mm. So to have an Ayu Dasumu for a junior season, to have Kofi Coburn come back, it, you know, like sometimes winning in college basketball, it's not just who you recruit, it's being able to retain – yeah. your best players year over year because the problem with college basketball right now is the best players are leaving for the NBA at the end of every season. So that's what they've been able to do at Illinois. He's been able to retain talent. He's continued to recruit good players. Uh, they've shot it better in the early going here than I think people thought they would. So they're really good, but they're not there yet. They haven't arrived yet. Not ready to win a game like last night yet. 
You know, one of King's buddies who he had on the show uh, over the summer is uh, Jared Butler, who's, you know, kind of the headliner for Baylor. Can you evaluate what kind of a player he is and what his potential is at the next level? Yeah, I, I think he's I think he's phenomenal. You know, the, the one thing he's a good scorer. He's not a, a good enough scorer where that's what he's going to be tabbed as at the next level. So he's going to have to be a point guard. Um, which he has, he was not a point guard when he got to Baylor. He may have, he may have been designated that or put in that position, and Scott may have asked him to do that, but he wasn't a point guard. He's learned how to play the position. And, and I think one of the really good things that, that Scott has done with that group offensively, when you've got a Butler, a Maceo Teague, and a Davion Mitchell, now they add Adam Flagler, um, you know, this sport right now at times can be so overcoached and coaches want to call everything and they want to manage everything that's going on out there on the floor. The thing that Scott has done is he's given those guys so much freedom. Like those guys are out there to make plays and that's on full display. And so I think that's where Jared and, and his running mates have really shined. You know, they, they play in an offense that allows them the freedom to do that. And then as we saw last night, what he has done become defensively, he's a two-way player. And I think it makes him incredibly valuable at the next level. Uh, I think age, in some respects, has been stigmatized in the NBA draft, which is to say if you're older, somehow that's become a negative. I don't get that. Uh, I think the fact that Jared Butler is as old as he is, did come back, has, he's gone through the NBA draft process, has come back, uh, I think makes him more, more valuable to me. So... Uh, he's terrific. And um, you guys have talked to him. The guy has a smile that lights up the room. He's so high character. He's so easy to talk to. He'd be great in any locker room. You wouldn't have to worry about him for, away from the facility the other 21 hours a day. Uh, he's a no-brainer for me in the NBA. Yeah, he, he's, he was so fun. And I loved him and King going back and forth when we had him yeah. on the pod. Um, I, you mentioned mid-major loosely in, in a big conversation, but I want to go there. One of the mid-majors that made some noise as we opened the college basketball season, Chris Mooney and his Richmond squad, knocking off Kentucky. Now, I know, listening to coaches on Media Day, preparing for games myself, the oddity of this year meant that this week was the first time that a lot of these teams were not going against their own teammates. And Kentucky is always young. Put the Richmond deal in perspective, because they jumped to, I think, 19 in week two of the top 25. Um, Mooney's a, good, a great coach. I remember covering the A-10 intensely, but obviously Kentucky is the team that has more national prominence. But can you put that in perspective, that game, uh, based on this year? Yeah, well, you've got a, a team in Kentucky, kind of like we were saying with Duke. Um, they're, they're not – I mean, it's like this every year with Kentucky. Uh, they're way behind offensively. They can't shoot. Uh, there are a lot of things that they can't do offensively that a team like Richmond is going to take advantage of. It gets back to the, the conversation about a team being old. Uh, Richmond has a bunch of guys with receding hairlines and, and big scruffy beards. They're really old, you know, and, and that's going to be a problem. And they're talented. So that combination is going to be a problem for, for Kentucky. And I tweeted this out after the game. We fall into this trap of having to psychoanalyze Kentucky and Duke when they lose games early in the season, and it's, it's like banging our heads against the wall. We know the answer. 
they're just not, they're, they're young. They're super young and they don't have a De'Aaron Fox or an Anthony Davis or a Carl Anthony Towns. They have really talented players who have amazing upside. They're not ready to win against a team like Richmond. And oh, by the way, Richmond is a team that offensively, they force you to guard some complicated stuff. I mean, it's a derivative of the Princeton offense. And you know this, Monica, like backdoor cuts, split action. You can have a veteran team that can't guard that stuff. Forget a Kentucky team that is just learning how to, to become, how to play defense at this level. So as I said in the tweet, this was much more about Richmond. They are no question a top 20 team. Uh, incredibly tough to guard. Very talented offensively. And Kentucky's just not a really good basketball team yet. Yeah. I need to ask a question about a team that's on nobody's radar screen at the moment, other than my own. Uh, I'm a Syracuse alum. Uh, ever since, and I was actually, Jim Beheim took over my sophomore year at Syracuse, so that tells you how old I am. Uh, since they've moved to the ACC, they just seem kind of lost as a program. I mean, how do you see the future of that program? Any thoughts? Yeah. You know, I wish that Coach Bayheim had embraced being a part of the ACC more when they joined. And, and I understand his reminiscing for the Big East. And obviously, he played in the Big East and he's coached in the Big East or coached in the Big East for a long, long time. I get it. But I, I think it, it sent the wrong recruiting message ultimately, which is to say we are guests at the party. We are not attempting to try and own the party. So that's first and foremost. Uh, secondly, you know, he had a guy who was an assistant for him for a long time, a guy named Mike Hopkins, who's now the head coach at Washington. And Mike Hopkins was a dynamo on the recruiting trail. And I, I think, you know, Mike did a lot of the heavy lifting recruiting wise for that program for a long, long time. Mike was with him. I don't even know how long it was. It was almost 20 years, I think. And of course he was the coach in waiting and, and all of that. Uh, losing that was, was tough, which is all to say that their talent level, it hasn't been what you remember and what we all remember of Syracuse. Um, when they were just loaded. I mean, just absolutely loaded year in and year out. The other problem is that the one or two guys that they've had who have been their best players have not stuck around. Mm. So, you, you know, you go down the line, you know, the Tyus Battles, the Tyler Lydon, who never saw a, a game or maybe a game in the NBA, but who knows where Tyler Lydon is now. I mean, you go down the line, uh, uh, Malachi Richardson, Mm. They went to the final four, right? Had a really good run and then boom, he's gone. So Jim, Coach Beheim, has dealt with what a lot of programs have, but he just hasn't been able to replace that cupboard. Um, and then he hasn't been able to get guys that fit that zone. Yeah. You know, like when Syracuse is great, that zone Long. is it's on, right? Like it's so good. It just hasn't been that vintage zone. And, and so I, it's an aggregate of a lot of things. It's not one thing, but um, it, it just, you're right. It hasn't been quite the same there. Hmm. Gosh, I, I, not that I would ever think of Syracuse nostalgically. Sorry, Bruce, but I, I remember the Big East Syracuse and that zone. And like when we were there, that 2007, 2011 range, and they were problematic to say the least. Um, all right, Chris, 
Real quick, top 25, I just want your dark horse. Maybe a team that's a little bit under the radar folks aren't talking about enough and they should be. Yeah, well, I, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, Richmond would have been there. Um, I would have I put them in that category. Um, you know, guys, Houston is, is a team that I think has been on our radar, but, but I think you, you know, fans may come in and say, are they going to be good again this year? Or, or, or has that thing ended? And no, that thing has not ended. Uh, Kelvin Sampson, this is not a newsflash, can really coach. Um, they are once again really tough on the defensive end. Uh, just absolutely handled Texas Tech, who I actually was really high on. Still am, uh, but they really could not score. Texas Tech could not score against Houston. So defensively, they're going to be really, really, really good. Um, so, you know, those are two teams I think people probably aren't necessarily familiar with. And then I will throw one out that people haven't heard this team. It's in a power five. It's in the big 10. Uh, and Bruce, you know, given your, your age comment about Syracuse a moment ago, there was a day when Rutgers basketball was actually pretty good. Well, I got to tell you, uh, the Steve Peichel hire a, a few years ago, I said, this is a home run hire. They got him from Stony Brook. It, it, Rutgers is going to be good here at some point. You just got to be patient. Well, that time has come. Uh, you know, look, I don't think they're necessarily Final Four good, but uh, they are finally in the conversation here, a top 25 conversation. They, they've, uh, they haven't lost yet. Uh, I think they're 3-0. and uh, So keep an eye on Rutgers, folks. I, I think they have a chance to have a pretty good year. Yeah, we, had, we actually had Peichel on. Um, a morning show that I host, and he was tons of fun, yeah. but he was talking about the continuity of his group and what the university has done in terms of pouring into the programs, and he gave a big shout out to Vivian Stringer, which I love. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I actually do remember Rutgers in the Final Four. I think it was my sophomore year of college. Yeah. Phil Sellers, Mike Dabney. Yeah. It's a thousand years ago, Chris. <laughs> At least a thousand. It feels like it. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much. I don't have anything else. Bruce, you got anything else? No, uh, I only, uh, you know, uh, any particular concerns, anything you want us to watch out for as we uh, head into the Christmas season and beyond? No, let's just get into conference play, guys. You know, um, we've gotten some really good matchups here in the non-conference, which I think has been good. I was a little bit dubious about why are we doing the non-conference thing? Let's just get to conference play. But uh, I hope we get there, and I hope we get as many games as possible in, and uh, and we eventually get to to an NCAA tournament. So, and and King McClure, let's get King McClure back. All right, let's get him back. Right? Oh my gosh, he's stressing me out, Chris. He's stressing me out. Um, you though, my friend, are not stressing me out at all. Thank you so much for joining us. We wish you the best of luck calling games this season. And I know game assignments are coming super late. So some extra grace in your preparation because it's a little crazy for all of us too. <laughs> you said it, Monica. You said it. Uh, best to you as well. Good luck, Bruce. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. This was a huge honor. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. That was dope. All right, folks, it's time to wrap. Thank you so much to Chris Spatola for talking college hoops with us. And also, we hope our king, King McClure, is back with us next week. We know you're under the weather, King. We're thinking of you, brah, and uh, feel better soon. 
And please don't forget our other shows. The Mike Wise Show drops each Monday. The new Full Court with Jenny Fisher and Kara Kay has former Villanova star Daryl Reynolds with some great insight this week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron has a great discussion on the Lakers and Clippers with LZ Granderson of the LA Times, ESPN Radio LA, and ABC News. BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast every Friday. And Monica and King are back next Thursday with Buckets, Boards, and Blocks from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Look, COVID-19 is still devastating families across the country, and it's the holidays, guys. We cannot let up when it comes to our vigilance and our response to this disease. This is my friendly reminder. Please wash your hands. Stay six feet apart. Definitely wear your mask. And I know it's tough, but as best you can, stay in the house. Avoid gathering. Please try to treat everyone as a friend. Be considerate, be thoughtful. Um, definitely pray for our medical professionals, our frontline workers, and our teachers. There's so much going on in our country and so many facets of life are being affected. Please continue working for a more inclusive and just society for all. And until next week, finally, we don't have to look hard for hoops. There's hoops all over the place. Enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.